hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Chapin Hemingway, joined as always by Lee Carlo and Jeremy Fisk. Guys, we haven't been very consistent these days, but uh, I got a lot of reactions to the Titanic podcast. Maybe we can talk about that sometime. But uh, this year, this year, this week, we are talking about Steven Soderbergh's new film released on HBO Max, No Sudden Move, starring Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro. Um, and do we have anything else to talk about, guys, or is that is that it? Well, maybe we can go over uh, what people are saying about the Titanic. Bob. I'd also like to hear, Chapin, your thoughts on Black Widow. Yeah, let's do that. Black Widow and some t- talk about Titanic bot. You said a man want to see me. Ali Albert. Can't come in. What is he, white? Oh, boy. So what's the score? Boom, 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 boom. We're sending a man that works in an office to pick something up. You are part of a babysitting team watching his family while he does it. Good morning. Everything is normal, except... What do you want? Is that something you'd say, normal Monday? I'm gonna shoot you right now. Can I go home now? Wait at the house after. What do you mean after? Right off of you. What is going on? What's going on, big guy? Yeah, what are we doing? We're following instructions. Are you helping me or are you not helping me? No, 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 no. Okay, guys. Um, I know we're not. We don't. We try not to have a leading question uh, to kick us off, but I can't help myself. Um, I'm wondering what you do, and try to keep your uh, your answers general to start with. But I'm wondering what you do when you watch a movie from a director you love or like, uh, with great performances, good cinematography, uh, a good script, kind of a dynamite script in a way, um, and then it ends. And you don't care about anything uh-huh, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You're saying Justin, you're not. You're not uh, tipping your hand not, to how you felt about this movie. You're just saying yeah, in, general. in general. And you leave and you it's, say, I don't know why I watched that. Um, it. I guess I kind of understood what was happening, but I don't care about anything. I'll, that I'll one. I'll one up you. What if you do all that and then you literally don't remember the movie <laughs> moments after that's so, another good point this is this is so great because so we you know we as uh, avid listeners know we recorded our titanic podcast a few weeks ago talked about doing no sudden move and you know we've all been busy with one thing or another so our, our podcasts have been less frequent but i i watched this movie nearly two weeks ago now so I was reviewing kind of like what we were going to talk about. <laughs> and I watched the trailer again. I was like, oh, yeah, John Hamm was in this movie. Oh, yeah, Kieran Culkin is in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it is a little forgettable. But Chapin, it's, to answer your question, it's, it's really kind of disappointing when that happens with movies because the experience is good. And you don't know until you get there, but you expect a good movie watching experience to have some sort of lasting effect. Yeah. And I, mean, I was, I was all in on the tone and the mood of this movie sort of yeah. at the beginning. Once I saw fat Brendan Fraser and I was in for a like film. Oh, yeah. Noir. He's in this movie. <laughs> yeah. A film noir, exciting, like Chinatown esque, you know, story. Um, but a few things sort of immediately took me out of it uh, and we can get into those and they were more 
technical decisions on Soderbergh's half, on on his part, and then it it got messy and it was hard to follow. Hmm. But we can we can well, sort of get into that. But Chapin, is what are you asking exactly? Just like what what we how we feel after the fact when a movie just immediately goes away it just it just happens it happens to me a lot when you watch something and you just suddenly feel like gosh i don't care about that at all and it's not that it was bad like there's plenty of bad movies and you know like right but there's bad movies that we talk about right all we the wa- time you know we walk away from a, so vividly from a movie like greyhound and it's like yeah that wasn't just mediocre that wasn't like pointless it was it was just bad it was they were and it was and we were and like you said yeah it was memorable because it was bad but this film like i i i i, I can I, I really only remember the matt damon scene because it was so bizarre and weird to see matt damon in this for some reason and i thought he was good and compelling but like i don't know i mean there was no yes. character that you really follow. It, there's no one you really care that much about. Um, well, let's let's take it back to Soderbergh himself because he, he every time he comes out with a new movie, we consider it for the podcast. But we always, or or at least lately, have had some sort of issue with his filmmaking. One of us, whether has, it yeah, be, certainly. yeah, like his uh, technical decisions, his. Uh, the decisions on how he's gonna sort of frame the movie, like let them all talk and put it on the cruise ship and sort of shoot it as a cruise. Like, there's something that one of us always seems to have a problem with when it comes to Soderbergh. So I, I wonder if if we could frame this discussion more in terms of Soderbergh himself yeah. as a filmmaker. I, I have a good yeah. thing. I think it's it goes back to what you just said, and we all, uh, to me, like I think of. And I've said this before: as Soderbergh is like a contemporary of David Fincher or Quentin Tarantino. Um, a lot of these directors we talk we, that are some of our favorites, who we've done retrospectives on, and they and he he helped get Christopher Nolan's career started, evidently. Um, but he just the way he makes movies, you know, he's got this kind of like experimental um, sort of post Hollywood take on making movies, you know, like. Um, in the, in the mid aughts, he released, um, I forget the name of them, but it's sort of these like weird, like video, um, movies shot on video. I think one of them had Julia Roberts and then that weren't very good. They were kind of graphic and I forget the name of those or a couple of them. And like, he had a different release strategy for them. We know that he shot a couple movies on an, on an iPhone. One of them, um, was released in an interesting way. I think that was the one with Claire Foy. I forget what, uh, mm-hmm. Unsane or whatever. Yeah, Unsane. Yeah. yeah. And, Which was okay. And well, this was shot on an iPhone. No, it wasn't. Pretty sure it was. No, it wasn't. Okay, go on. I'm. I. Uh, I'm pretty sure I looked up the trivia on it. And um, it uh, it's just like that's just not a that's just not a good enough reason to always make a movie. I mean, I'm glad he made Let Them All Talk. Lee, I know you didn't like it, but for you it wasn't enough just to put just to have a movie shot on the red. Yeah, shot to to have a movie shot on the Queen Mary. But like you know, it's uh well it, I think there's just like there's something that feels about all these movies if if you're sort of if you're not liking them that feels like it's just it's it's more about the experiment of making them and more about the process of making them well, than actually yeah. making a really 
meaningful standout film. And and that's what I love about Soderbergh in theory. Right. Right. He's almost he's almost like a film student. Right. He's like trying to learn all these new avenues in terms of ways to make a movie, whether it's shooting on an iPhone. And Jeremy, I assume the technical piece you're talking about here is this fisheye lens that is is throughout the it's, movie it's for seemingly no reason and hugely distracting. I, I found it distracting too, but I what I took away from that is that this is what Soderbergh does. He makes a decision to try something and it's almost as if he builds a movie around that decision instead of the but other way around. Is that a way to make a movie? I think not in the way that we like them and not the way we'd expect to see it from a Tarantino or a Fincher or, or even did, like True Masters like PTA or Scorsese, but this is what Soderbergh does and I admire that from him. I've been critical of him in the past few years with movies like High um, High Flying Bird and Let Them All Talk uh, and The Laundromat, which I think is probably relatively comparable to this movie, although I liked it less. Um, I liked that one less. I, I just, I think when he's able to do, input some of his strengths, which I thought he did here. I, I actually enjoyed this movie quite a bit because there were a lot of things that we like about Soderbergh in it. And there were shades of Ocean's Eleven, of course, and there were there was you know interesting plot twists and storytelling conventions that he handles well. But it's all sort of shrouded in him experimenting, and I like that in theory. It doesn't always work, <laughs> and sometimes it's actually kind of annoying when the movie as a whole doesn't doesn't work. But I think we all like that Soderbergh kind of works outside the system whilst working in it and yeah, I, you know he he changes with the tide and he releases his movies where he knows they'll be seen and i just think he's a really smart up-to-date competent filmmaker that isn't afraid to just try things when he wants to yeah and and, and it can be frustrating it's weird i, mm-hmm. I like I have two sides of the same uh, true. same coin where i'm like <clears throat> Yeah, I want to. I'm I'm curious what Soderbergh's gonna do next. I'm curious if it's gonna come together. But then there's part of me that just like really gets annoyed at at the fact that he's he's not necessarily serving the story. The story seems somewhat irrelevant, like you said, Lee, to what he's trying to accomplish in that movie and uh, or, or accomplish, you know, with what he's experimenting with in in each particular movie. And that is not. I don't think. That See, that's how I felt about Let Them All Talk. I didn't feel that way here. I, I think, you know, while the fisheye lens and, like, the stuff he's doing with the camera is is clearly intentional and, you know, a little head-scratching at times, I felt like the focus was on this story. And, sure, it's confusing. I'm not, I'm not sure I totally understand every plot detail. I don't know how important that is. I left this movie being like, this will really reward a second viewing. I came into this podcast today being like, I'm never going to watch this movie again. And you saw it, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. I could have watched it again. anything. Yeah. I mean, it is weird. It just does fade from your memory. But while you're watching it, it, it had a lot going for it, I thought. Uh, yeah, I think it... it it's titled No Sudden Move it is apropos of the film in general. It, it is sort of like a slow burn a bit, you know, nothing really <clears throat> happens too quickly. Um, 
I don't know. Did you guys feel? Did you were you gripped by this story, or was this story sort of? I think why it was tough to find it gripping is because I spent too much time trying to understand, and you know, there's a lot of double crosses and twists and turns, and you know, hidden motives from the characters in this movie, and you're trying to piece it all together. And I think, you know, it's intentionally hidden from us but it is frustrating so in trying to figure all that stuff out I found it to be less gripping than I would have liked and you know it can go both ways a movie can be confusing and have you on the edge of your seat and have you thinking a lot about it and be incredibly gripping memento comes to mind for some reason but this movie wasn't overly gripping I think it's because the characters didn't grab me yeah, which is weird because I think the acting was good, but the yeah, characters really weren't. But uh, it's a same. In- but you know, it's tough because I think this is this is a very interesting discussion because that's how I feel now. You know, nearly two weeks out, talking about what ultimately is a forgettable movie. But I, I don't know for sure that I felt that way while watching it. I really liked David Harbor in this movie. I thought his character was oh. really interesting. I thought. Uh, I thought Clearly the dynamic between Benicio del Toro and Don Cheadle was interesting, even I though like, it wasn't like quite that. as like. I, I oh, see. I, for that. I think, I think this this movie had things going for it. It just never, it never like accumulated into something like so satisfying that it leads me to want to talk about it. And that's the thing you want with these noir detective like films. Mm-hmm. You want that to come together in a very satisfying way, especially if you're going to go all in with it. And it's like, it just never even came close to getting there. But even if it doesn't come together, it needs to just be, it needs to have the things going throughout that make us want to talk about it. Like Chapin, you clearly did not like David Harbour in this movie. Ugh. It's going to be a David Harbour double feature here today. But. Um, yes. So can I just correct you? So it's not a fisheye lens. It's He's shooting with these anamorphic lenses, which I actually have filmed a, com- a series of commercials with. And, uh, oh, that's where he got the idea? Yeah, he got them from me. He stole everything. He bites everything yep. from Hemingway. Um, but yeah, like there, I remember I told you guys that about that Fincher quote when he, when he said how idiotic it is to use anamorphic lenses because you're, you're warping and manipulating this, the image. And, um, he th- that lens in particular is the widest lens they make for it. It's a forty millimeter, and because it's wide and it's not like the nicest anamorphic lens, you get this weird warping effect where yeah. essentially like the the yeah, thing, it wasn't totally fisheye; it just warps the edges. Yeah, yeah, the edges are like squeezed, and so we we shot a few things, a few shots on that forty that forty millimeter lens, and we're like, yeah, we can't put this on the TV. It just looks too weird. It's got this weird look. And I, and the, the reason I, I initially was drawn to that, there is a shot like in the opening of, um, there will be blood when they're look, when you, when they're sort of slowly tilting down into the well where he's digging, there's this weird warping too, this anamorphic warping that you can see that I liked. And I always remember kind of thinking that was cool, but it's like, dude, you just, you just push that too far. You know, it was too much. It's like, <laughs> Way too far. <laughs> yeah. Like you shot way too much with that stuff and you got to be careful about how you shoot it. But um, anyways, no, I I hated David Harbour. Weirdly, I thought he was much better in uh, Black Widow. Um, I thought he was, I, I, I find him very, very annoying. The last season of Stranger Things or maybe it was the second to last. I don't know. I, I mean, that show kind of went, took a 
tumble for in, in, in my opinion but also i just he just seems to yell the whole time like that's his thing is to yell i found it very annoying which i think is probably the point but it was too irritating for me to enjoy yeah i think there was definitely some tonal issues with this movie in terms of like the characters like david harbour was in one movie benicio del toro was in sicario <laughs> like don Cheadle was in oceans 11 like it just felt like there was some like some strange behavior from all these characters that wasn't jiving with everybody john, else john ham was in 30 rock and that was in the town what is it? I don't, what it, I don't understand. Like, he just plays FBI agents? I don't know. I'm, I'm beginning to think he's an actually pretty bad actor. Oh, I've been saying that. I He was good in Mad Men from what I, yeah. I mean, for what I saw, but I've never seen him really that good in anything else. I think the best two performances in this were Sheetal. He's good in Bridesmaids. He's funny in Bridesmaids. He's funny in Bridesmaids. With Sheetal and actually Damon. I, love, I don't oh, know yeah, why. I don't understand what, what it is about a Damon cameo. That's so great, but this is like the third one where he just comes out of nowhere, um, and you're just like, yeah, I love seeing him. He's good at delivering information. I mean, although, oddly, I don't know how much I love the cameo he has in Interstellar, which may be his most famous one. I, I like it. I but, like it. Um, yeah, so he, that he kind of plays a his, tool in both of those. His, uh, his appearance in this movie or his role in this movie is what makes it similar to the laundromat. Did you guys see that? No. No. So that's about like the basically the um you know there was this there was this famous issue where a like a duck boat or whatever they're called in another state sank and a bunch of people died and the insurance claims there was all these parent companies on top of parent companies on top of parent companies so nobody ever got paid out for the insurance claims and stuff and it's just it's basically about that which doesn't become clear kind of until the end and Meryl Streep kind of gives this monologue you don't really understand entirely what the movie's about the whole time and this movie's kind of similar it feels like a heist movie but as it turns out when Damon appears it's it's about something a real life thing that happened uh in terms of how cars were made and that's interesting but did you guys feel like it was necessary I think it felt like a different story yeah it felt it felt like trying to interject some sort of like lesson about capitalism and but it plays like this is what the movie was about all along but it wasn't it was sort of this heist and like and then and that didn't totally resolve everything either like we still weren't sure what was going to happen with all the characters yeah i'm i i would have kind of been up for that movie that what was actually explained i mean i didn't realize they were in detroit until like Three quarters of the way through the movie, I think it says it like pretty early. Oh, does it? Yeah, I think you're just gonna be paying attention. Ah, oh, that's that my was, problem. Uh, it's just, but but honestly, like, I mean, there's there's something interesting about. I, I like movies where everybody's sort of in it for themselves, and one person is double crossing each other. This is a familiar trope, and yeah. But they didn't build that here. That wasn't built in. Yeah. You know, we're like, okay, or do do we follow Don Cheeto? Like he seems to be after some redemption here. Nothing seems, but nothing happened with him. Uh, spoiler alert: Benicio gets it from his wife, who we don't really care about because she's not really a big character from Uncut Gems. Um, yeah, Julia Fox. So, 
Yeah, I just didn't care about this movie. I mean, we're 20 minutes in, and I just don't have anything else to say. Well, this is how... Guys, this is this is what you guys gave me shit about with Let Them All Talk. Now, I liked this movie more than it sounds like you definitely, Chapin. Maybe you too, Jeremy. But Yeah, you, you did. I, I am with you 100% in terms of how I feel about it now. It's, it's, I, it's disappeared from my consciousness, but... <laughs> This is how I felt about Let Them All Talk. And my gripe was that I was like, I'm tired of Soderbergh, a talented filmmaker, wasting my time. Like, making Here's these the meaningless movies. <clears throat> like, like this is a director that did Ocean's Eleven, which is arguably one of the most entertaining heist movies, right? Like, it just, in terms of how that movie is structured, the payoff, the characters that you just love... The group dynamic, the get the gang together, all that stuff is so cool in Ocean's Eleven. And I don't know if I've even seen 12 and 13. You can have your mixed feelings about those. But this is the same director that pulled that off. And he does something a little bit similar here. The period piece, the noir, all these things that we like. And just seems to not put enough attention into the characters and the getting the gang together and the like the excitement of the job and the the motives yeah, behind the double crosses like all those things are friends. these are well, yeah but that doesn't matter like for themselves so that but that can be interesting on its own like why yeah. what is the you know what's the gripe between these two people why do they have history like all this stuff is there's this weird throwaway line where don Cheadle's like oh you worked for ford like or whatever it says at the end and it just was like who cares and yeah. that stuff's all absent. So, like, what what is Soderbergh giving us? Like, is or is it just that he is simply making movies for himself? And I I don't we can't fault him for that. I guess like if look he's if it. all of Soderbergh's movies were failures, we wouldn't be sitting here reviewing you know every other movie that comes out of his. There's something he he hits on stuff every once in a while, and when he hits, he hits home runs. Um, let them all talk. I don't think it was like a, a a grand slam home run, but I thought it was really good, and I think I think it it, it worked for uh, what he was trying to do. But there's also so many of these type of movies where we just go, that was either What's frustrating his... or it didn't work from for the audience, or there's stuff like High Flying Bird, which I I pretty much hated. Like What's his last up. hit? What's his last um, hit? Would you call Logan Lucky a hit? No. Not in terms of, forget about I think like, it's probably, box office, just in terms of like, quality Mike. of film. So Logan Logan Lucky, side effects, Magic Mike goes back to 2012. Yeah, it's probably Magic is that, Mike. Is that a successful movie in terms yes. of like what Soderbergh does? Magic Mike was, uh, I actually haven't seen it. Um, All right. But. So we're going back to, two th- so because 2011 is Contagion. You know, we're going back to that era. The informant is 2009. I mean, even like it's tough. Like, but what I'm saying, I, I is... think to to get to an unequivocally, like, uh, like no questions about it. This is Soderbergh, great director at his best. You have to go back to 2001, which is Ocean's Eleven. No, Contagion. No, Contagion is good, but Contagion is not a, a like I'm not watching that movie thinking like Soderbergh is one of my favorite directors. Oh, I have. Yeah, I thought I, it was extraordinary, especially okay, after so the fine. context of, of COVID. But, okay, um, all right, I'll, I'll give it to you. So Contagion in 2011. So that means we have one in the Mike. last 20 years. I, I think Magic I would, Mike, I, I love Mike. that period of his that's like, it feels experimental. Okay, but, so that's fair. But hold on, hold on, hold on. He It's that period of like the girlfriend experience, which I haven't actually mm-hmm. seen. 
the informant uh, I saw which it. I also haven't seen but like Magic Mike is in there uh, Haywire is in there that's a cool movie um, where where it's like it's sort of similar right like it's it's he's 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 picking these sort of mine I would say just minor projects they have like a couple stars they're low they're lower on the lower end of budgets um, but I don't know like he does something interesting with them and but this just wasn't all right so interesting that's good so 10 years so it's been 10 uh, years now look he did some but, tv stuff right he did the nick he did mosaic he did so he did the been, oscars he's been yeah he, well, yeah so another fail by the way <laughs> on his resume recently um, um my, it's my been point 10 years is since he's been producing my point something is significant he he has made good movies he has been a director we like in the past and he also does interesting stuff so that's what we're drawn to with with him but yes he's gonna he's gonna have those failures okay but and let's let's ask ourselves something okay and this is a bad example but the one i always go back to um because i like his movies i'm not afraid to admit it but woody allen let's say back when woody allen <laughs> wasn't canceled someone like yeah. that where he puts out a movie a year sometimes sometimes too but every year he's got a movie right and maybe um maybe every one of those is uh, every other one of them is good, and then maybe every fourth one is great. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's too generous. But would you prefer that, or um, would you prefer that the PTA thing? Yeah, like would you prefer that, or would you prefer what what he's doing now, which is like I think something different. Like at least every, I mean, maybe not at least, but every Woody Allen movie is a Woody Allen movie. It's they're sort of nicely shot. They've got good performances. They're not terribly high in production value, but they they look good and they've always got a decent cinematographer, et cetera, right? Like, and they sometimes they range in budget. But for Soderbergh, do you like? I mean, I know we don't like the iPhone thing, but do we like in general the experimentation? Do we want like a I, a, a, a Soderbergh esque whatever that would be movie coming out every year, or do we like that he's experimenting with different? technology with different release platforms for example you know he did a bunch of stuff with netflix and now he's working with hbo max yeah so i like that's this question thing. In, in, in that's what i was trying to say before that in theory i like this and like in theory i like that he tries something with a anamorphic lens and i like that he tries to film a movie on a active cruise ship like in theory that's really cool same with the iphone like what can we do with this iphone like this is all smart, innovative, interesting stuff. But Soderbergh is talented enough to put a good movie around it. So maybe it does mean, no, we're not going to do two movies a year. I'm going to do one or I'm going to take some more time. And I can still experiment with all these things, but I can, you know, develop this script a little bit more. I can think about the things that I've done in some of my great movies that have made them work and made them a little bit more interesting to a broader audience or even to a specific audience. But to me, it's just interesting that he's making these movies this way, but it's not interesting enough to watch them. And that's what's aggravating because I know what he's capable of. So if you can combine those things, if you can take what he does in a movie like Contagion or if we want to go back to Ocean's Eleven and Traffic and Aaron Brockovich or whatever it may be, and then infuse what he wants to do technically or, you know, the challenge of filming on a cruise ship. He is capable of that, but I think he works quick. He's trying to get these movies out and so he can move on to his next experiment. And that's 
taking away the opportunity to make a great movie in combination with experimentation. And I would love to have that. I just don't think that that's what his his goal is. Right. Remember when he retired? Right. Yeah, that's the other weird thing. Every time he makes a movie, I'm like, I thought he retired. He's made like well, 20 <clears throat> movies since he retired. I'd, I'd, I'd love to answer Chapin's question because I think it was a really good one. Um, because, yeah, we're kind of being nitpicky a little bit, like – because we we want Soderbergh to be to to be Soderbergh, but we also want every one of his movies to be good, and <laughs> yeah. you can't really, I guess, always have it that way. And if I had to choose, I would I would one hundred percent choose the Soderbergh route over the Woody Allen route because Woody Allen is like like you said, all his movies are relatively the same. They're different. They're they're the same characters. Uh, it being embodied by different actors with the same relative jokes. It's same and, plot, just in the same story. <laughs> and every once in a while, he'll hit on one of those that seems a little bit different or unique. Um, right, but they're like uh, they're always just Midnight like in Paris. remakes. Some of them are even like remakes of their old movies. Like, right. like you know, Crimes and Misdemeanors is very similar to match point or whatever you know like they're essentially the right. same plot yeah and 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 you know if you want to take the best of both of them i think i'd probably take the best of woody allen but if i want the the filmmaker consistently i think i would take Soderbergh. i think yes. I, I like what he does more but, but i have a tr i have a problem with i like the experimentation but i don't like that it comes at the expense of saying look i have this rare and maybe with Soderbergh it isn't so rare but I have this relatively rare opportunity to make a movie and I want to make it great. And when you Yeah, that's my yeah. point, Chapin. Yeah. When you But do you think Woody Allen says that? He doesn't No, because care. he, he can, I mean well he used on. to be able to make a movie every year and and he has funding and he's sort of in rarefied air there, but You could it, also maybe even put Clint Eastwood in that. No, you absolutely but, could. But like that's the thing like some but like let's say somebody like Nolan, like Nolan or Fincher for that for that matter. Those guys you know, he, Nolan makes a movie over two, two and a half, three years, right? So it's a big deal, and it's like a significant thing when the movie comes out. And you get the feeling that even if you weren't a big fan of Tenet, that these movies are well thought out. They're they're special in a way, and mm -hmm. yeah. and the specialty of Soderbergh doesn't isn't always there. It doesn't always feel special, but sometimes that's great. Like I love the sort of casualness, for lack of a better description, of let them all talk. I felt that that really worked for that movie. And it, it worked for what I needed in that depressing, dark time of movies um, when every movie was two and a half hours long and socially conscious and blah, blah, blah. It was a nice refresher. So I think that there is a, a specialness, as you described, Chapin, to Soderbergh's movies. They're just not events, like something with Nolan or Tarantino or something. And that's because he makes so many and they're not necessarily movies built for a wide audience. But I think you hit the nail on the head in saying that he, that we all like the experimental nature, but it, why does it have to come at the expense of making a quality movie? We know he's capable of doing that. Why sell himself short? Well, because I don't think and, he's trying not to make a quality movie. I don't movie. think he is I, either. He but I think if you, if you may, if you say, gosh, I'm, I'm interested in, because I have the same, on a much more minor scale, I have the same, I get these same sort of feelings where you, you, you look at a piece of technology and you like, think about how you could use it. 
and oh god i want to do this cool thing with with this new piece of equipment right. and he looks at the iphone and the possibilities there he thinks about how you know making oceans 11 with a huge film camera and stars and all the baggage that comes along with it and oh i can make a movie where i don't have to light anything i can just literally stand in an elevator and hold up an iphone and he's got to get that out of his system you know like okay i did it with what two movies i don't want to do it again um and so that does come at the expense of specialness because I don't know. I don't think a special movie is going to be shot on an iPhone. I mean, please don't shoot special movies on iPhones. That, right. And that, and that's fair. But I think what I guess what I'm describing as special is that we get excited about when Soderbergh has a movie. I, I think that may just honestly have to do with the fact that, you know, despite the fact that we've got a bunch of 2020 movies rolling over to tw- into 2021 and this year, has the potential of being a really good, exciting movie year. It has not been to this point. There has n- nothing has come out. So to have something from Soderbergh is exciting well, and that's special. The thing. That's the thing and with Soderbergh. Is we like get that every year. One. We always have a Soderbergh movie, at least one every year, this time of year or in the spring that we can feel like is special because we have a director that we like that is releasing a movie, but it's becoming more and more consistent that these movies are not special that these movies are not interesting that they're not entertaining and then that they're not memorable and how long are we supposed to go (laughs) treating Soderbergh movies as exciting special events for ourselves at least if this is going to keep being the results like I understand that like he wants to he wants to work. He likes to work. He wants to try new things. And the faster he makes the movies, the faster he can get to the next new thing that he wants to try. But I was trying to look up the shooting days for traffic and I couldn't find it off the bat. But, you know, that is clearly to me a movie that took a lot of time. And that's a movie that he <laughs> that came out the same year as Aaron Brockovich. So he's capable of producing multiple movies in a year but not only that lee he he the nowadays he shoots and edits all his movies so he's there you know when you're directing a lot of times you're sitting you're just kind of sitting around waiting for them to light the thing and get ready and so there's you know it's it you don't have to expel so much energy but when you have multiple roles especially when you're the dp it's incredibly must be incredibly taxing and there's no reason he has to do it he's not i mean i guess they're saving a little no. bit of money but he do, he must do it because he <laughs> likes it and then he edits at night he goes home and he edits the scenes and he's got them ready to show people the next morning i mean that's an incredible that to me suggests I, it's not about i mean he doesn't seem like someone who's a control freak you know he doesn't his like his vision isn't no, it strikes me as somebody enough. who likes to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. He just likes to do it and it, it and he's got a mind to do it. And and you know, I I think Lee, you've heard on the big picture they talk about this, but he's got a website where he does things like recut Raiders of the Lost Ark to the social <laughs> network soundtrack in black and white. Why? Why do that? Yeah. You've got but better it, things. But this to is do. all this is all proof that all of this that we're talking about, the last ten years of Soderbergh's films are for him he is he's able to release them on platforms or in theaters and make some money as a result but it's all for him he's doing it for himself and i don't hold that against him he's at a he technically retired so maybe maybe this is his retirement right and he doesn't owe us anything it doesn't feel like he owes us as audiences anything 
but it's aggravating that I know what he's capable of. And with a movie like No Sudden Move, more so than Let Them All Talk or High Flying Bird or The Laundromat, with a movie like No Sudden Move, I saw glimpses of what I love about Soderbergh's storytelling and filmmaking, and I thought that some of it was there and enjoyed a lot of it while I was watching it. But in the aftermath, I was like, no, this is the same issue. This is a movie that was an experiment, for lack of a better term. And it's just frustrating because I was like, man, there's a lot of pieces here that could have been great. Why didn't he just make it great? Well, Chapin, you talk about control with him, and I think he's the opposite of somebody who needs to control everything. Because if you're editing at night, you're not... You're not looking through every single take like perfectly. Like, you're, yeah, if you're, you're like, getting scenes done, <laughs> if you're if you're the DP and you're like like all this all this time saving he's doing <laughs> is is the opposite of being in total control of everything. It's letting stuff go. It's letting stuff um, <clears throat> be up to the gods of cinema because you really can't you really can't have complete and utter control in the little amount of time that he's making this movie. No, and he and he seems to like to be out of like the the limiting factors of like being on the Queen Mary or shooting on an iPhone. Like that that those yeah. those things I mean they may get, they may make your job easier in the case of the iPhone, but they are limiting in in in, in many ways. And I'm sure that's as an artist something he likes. Like, okay. It is freeing to be limited, like to have constraints, like because you can't do anything about it. You have to work within the, the realm of your constraints. It's like we always talk about Scorsese. Like we'd love to see him do a, a a $15 million movie and see what he can do with it, you know, because you have to work within that. And I think you can get interesting stuff that way. And I think he just thrives on it. So he's got he's got a movie in post-production, of course, already <laughs> called called Kimmy. Which is yeah. an agoraph- agoraphobic Seattle tech worker uncovers evidence of a crime. Screenplay by David Kep. Sounds interesting to me. It's got a very interesting cast. It's got Zoe Kravitz, Erica Christensen, who he worked with in Traffic and we never saw since. Oh, wow. And, um, a lot of people that I'm not familiar with, uh, Jacob Vargas, who is in Traffic also. Also, Devin Rattay. Guys, do you know who Devin Rattay is? Nope. If you look him up on IMDb, you'll know who he is. Um, but I'm excited to see this. Like, it's just... <laughs> I, I know all the stuff we're talking about. It sounds like a oh, cool plot. Oh, it's Biff, right? But Buzz. Buzz, Buzz, yeah, sorry. Yeah, from buzz. Home Alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, all the stuff we've been talking about, but now we have a cool-sounding plot written by David Kep, directed by Steven Soderbergh, and I'm excited to see it. So, but, like, Why? Well, I mean, we could have, uh, he does, you know, does make good movies every once in a while and even his even his ten, bad ten movies years, are at, at least, least at least interesting and we can talk about them for 45 minutes. <laughs> I don't know. Chapin said 20 minutes ago he ran out of stuff to talk about. Then we just yeah, talked well, about here him, we are, still him going. personally. All right, um, let's move on. Um, yeah. Let's move on to so Chapin, what are you okay. hearing about Titanic Pod? No, just people were mad because we ch- shat on the movie so much. What? Yeah. Did we? No. Well, not really. But um, Jeremy said he liked it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't have a lot to say, but I, um, one person told me, Lee, that they were a little angry at you. They thought, like, they didn't understand why you didn't like the romance, but, like, the boat part, like, there's 
And I, but I, I kind of felt the same way, but the way you said it, it was something about like the way it was directed and they're, they're both sort of the same and they disagreed for your reasoning about the romance. I mean, and I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it. The romance is poorly written. The actors are poorly directed. The story makes no sense. And the boat, the boat sinking is a technical masterpiece for the time. And Cameron deserves a ton of credit for what he pulled off there and very, very little for failing to direct a Romeo and Juliet tale that's been told a thousand times with two of the greatest actors of their generations. So I <laughs> so there you case. go. There you go, listener. Our one one listener. Yeah. Take that. So, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, so let's uh, talk about a movie I have no interest in watching. Anyhow, oh, but so I guys, actually really want to see, but I haven't had a chance to. You guys can spoil it for me all you want. I have no interest in this movie. but I haven't seen it, but Chapin. Black Widow. Chapin, of sell, course, saw it. Sell Jeremy day. on this movie. Yeah. Um, it was the first movie I saw back from COVID. In the theater. In the theater. That's felt, great news, too. Felt just like being, like, felt just like being back. It was did not feel spe- yeah, like, special at all. People people are talking. People are You're everywhere. like, you motherfuckers. You motherfuckers, Al. <laughs> You motherfucking butt. Oh, mutt. <laughs> uh, Was there ever a moment you're like, I could have just watched this at home? I mean, I did think about that. It's, but you got to pay thirty dollars to rent it at home off a uh, subscription yeah. service. That well, you've we were almost there because it. it was the IMAX screening. Um, it was so I actually really liked it. Um, it was very very clever. The performances were very good. I, what I really responded to, in, in short, was the banter, the sort of relationship between the characters. And mostly that's between Scarlett Johansson and my gal, Florence Pugh, who was absolutely the highlight of the movie. Not surprising. <clears throat> Fixie winner. Um, but also, I really enjoyed David Harbour, and I really, of course, enjoyed Rachel Weiss, who plays... Those two play kind of their parent figures, not to give too much away. Um and the dialogue is really good. Also a Fixie winner. Two Fixie winners in this movie. Right. That's amazing. And and Scarlett Johansson's a nominee. Fixie nominee. Good writing. Um, really, really good. I thought like Scarlett Johansson, who who kind of like, I like her as Black Widow. She's an interesting presence among those characters on the Avengers. But she doesn't really get much more to do than kind of like, you know, in their, her way be like, oh, boys will be boys or like, you know, kind of that kind of <laughs> thing. Um, or, you know, just but, but um, she gets more to do here. And I think she's really good. Um, they it's clear in this movie that they filmed a lot on location. Um, it's not like all done in Atlanta. Um, and I really enjoyed that part. What, what I thought was interesting is that there are a series of action set pieces in this movie that I just don't care about. Like, just, I just, I was like, can we get back to the talking? You know, like, it was sort of interesting. That doesn't sound like you. Not what the Marvel franchise wants. <laughs> no, no. But, um, so ultimately, I think, I, I honestly thought it was very clever. And I, I, I think the plot where would you, is quite interesting. Um, where would you rate it in the, uh, in the canon, in the MCU canon? Like, it's probably up there. I don't maybe among the top 10. I guess that's only okay. halfway up there. There's only like 22 or 23. Um, but yeah, you know, they know how to make a movie for sure. And it looks good. And, um, but you know, it's, it's got those same kind of tropes. It's like, it's, it's probably 20 minutes too long. Um, 
you know, the action isn't very compelling. Um, I wish they'd figure that out. You know, I wish that they would find a way to, you know, these are, these are the action movies of our, of our time. And, you know, they're all in the wake of a film, you know, films like Mad Max Fury Road, where you can see how action can still be original and creative, you know, after years and year, you know, a hundred years of action movies. Um, and they just aren't, they just, they are, they're look, they look good. They're, you know, the, the CGI in this film was actually pretty good. I thought, but, uh, they're just not interesting. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm looking at the director. The director of this movie did, has done like nothing. I mean, she did a uh, four yeah, episodes I was just bring of that up. Smilf. Which apparently I I did I worked on. Um, did you so, work? Did you work on that, Jeremy? I worked on all of season two of it. Yeah, I don't know if it was season well, one. Well, so here's what I here's what I'm curious. What I want because I thought I saw that too. So Kate Kate Shortland directed this movie. Very how little did she, in terms how did of she get you know what film? her rep- resume represents. Um, some TV. You know, we look at who's getting these Marvel movies. You know, we know Chloe Zhao. Has one coming up. Um, Destin, is it Destin? Daniel Cretton <coughs> has one who did Short Term 12, which is a great movie. And then he did, um, what is the movie he did with Jamie Foxx? Um, Just Mercy. Just Mercy. So, you know, and then Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who directed Half Nelson and Kind of a Funny Story and Sugar, they, they directed Captain Marvel. So, like, these directors who you know, sort of come from the indie realm but produce some, like, you know, really interesting, great movies, get these shots at making Marvel movies. And I think that that, you know, is simultaneously great but also frustrating because I want them to keep making those other types of movies. But well, <clears throat> I like that they have these opportunities. You know, we've talked about it before. Is uh, who are, Andrew Patterson, he's the guy who directed, um, what's that sci-fi movie, that indie sci-fi movie we watched last year? Um that was kind of all set in one town about the, you know, radio. Oh, in, in Vast uh, of Void. Or... Vast oh, of Night. Vast of, so yeah. I think, Chapin, you you mentioned, like, you know, here's a guy who, you know, clearly showed a flourish for directing, and even if his we didn't love his movie, like, you know, this is the guy that in a few, you know, five, ten years or something, you could see him directing a Marvel movie, right? Well, and, they, they should just give that guy, I mean, if they're going to give that woman a Marvel movie, they should give him Well, one. that's my that's my point. Like, he... I, I don't know this director. I don't know what she brings to these TV series. I don't know this movie Lore or Berlin Syndrome. I don't know anything about her. But this is just not what you expect. And it's very interesting that she got this job and seems like, you know, made a pretty good movie. But, Chapin, well, to your point, the action set pieces that these movies are built on were underwhelming. Yeah. I think it's great. I think you have a, there's a sort of two edges to this sort. One is that, yeah, these, these sort of directors, you wouldn't think they would trust with Marvel movies are getting, getting it. And I think, you know, for a movie about a woman, it's good that it's directed by a woman. And, um, but they're also, I get a, I get the sense that they're also very tightly managed. Um, yeah. So that's the thing I was going to bring up. Like, do you think any of the Marvel movies from any of the directors, like, do, do you see any well, of the their... Russos? I'm sure can well, do whatever do you, they want. Do you see but... any no, of I don't their think anybody can be. directorial? Really? You don't even think those guys? No. But uh, I, I guess I shouldn't say whatever they want, but I, they've done a few of the movies. I just, I have trouble believing that Chloe Zhao will make a movie that's not her own. 
with the Eternals or Eternals or whatever we're calling it. Um, but so, what's the point of of having these directors if none of them are going to put their own uh, uh, fingerprints on these movies? If they're just going to be tightly controlled well, I, and they're all going to be the same thing? I don't. I think they still have their fingerprints and their stylistic flurries and things of that nature, but. Do they though? They do. Well, Chloe Zhao is not gonna on Eternals. Her fingerprint is go find real people and film them. Yeah, true. Um, but yes, like I, they may not be as obvious, but I think like you know if you think about the director of um, the Guardians of the Galaxy, what's that guy's name? Um, God, why can't I remember? He did it. Uh, James Gunn. And yeah, I think that film feels very much like his movie. Um, and in that case, it worked. I think, um, you know, it... it, it but what does this bring to the Marvel franchise in terms Black of Widow? hiring these directors? No, the, the hiring these directors. Like, my first thought was just like, oh, Chloe Zhao, I mean, obviously she had the gig before this, but, like, Chloe Zhao just won an Oscar for Best Director. Like, there's some buzz surrounding her. Maybe that's interesting. But nobody knows outside of us and people like us who Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck are. Nobody knows who Destin Daniel Cretton is. And, like, def- nobody definitely knows who uh, Kate Shortland is. So, like... What is what is hiring these directors doing for the franchise? Because it doesn't matter to these movies if the d- directors bring a, you know, flourish or their own style to it. It ultimately is insigni- in, inconsequential. I, I, so, I don't I disagree with that. I think it's... I think the, crea- the creative force behind these movies are the team, Kevin Feige and the team. They have like a... Yeah. team of people um and that's fine and that's why the movies i think connect really well and why they don't connect well in like the dc universe yeah. for example but yeah you're right i mean you you want to give i mean i think the I, i'm really curious to see the eternals i mean will that be closure just seems like someone who doesn't compromise and does things her way so it'll be interesting to see if <laughs> it's just so bad if it is it that's, makes, that's just makes no sense <laughs> That'll be really sad. I would love to see the superhero version of Nomadland. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's just it's just Jeff Bezos you, like crashing into the Amazon factory. If you've seen the, um, if you've seen the trailer, it does kind of like you know they use real locations and there there is some they're in nature and you know I don't know there's some stuff that looks Jaoist. <laughs> Jaoist, are we are we uh, taking that term? Are we patenting that? Yeah, I like I said, I I like the idea that these directors that we like and find interesting get these jobs. I think ultimately, in the long run, it can be good for them in terms of you know giving them the ability to make more of the movies that we're interested in. So. I'm fine with these, you know, them getting these these movies. I I I suppose I just don't understand that if there's going to be so much control from Feige and his team, <laughs> why not just hire anybody? Right. Like, but, okay. Like, isn't that? I mean, isn't that what like Disney's doing with Star Wars? Like, if they don't have Abrams, they just get like they just get somebody they can bully. Like, maybe, but but. 
Okay, let's think. But of, then those who's the biggest movies. direct? They haven't really hired any like real powerhouses. I mean, maybe Joss Whedon was the biggest, right? Because or, or, I think, I think because they need to be able to control them in some aspect. Like all these people are getting maybe their first real payday ever. I mean. Yeah no matter how uh, much they say they're not going to compromise on their vision, there's definitely probably something in the contract saying, hey, we got to keep this, like it's part of a bigger universe here. It has to fit into that, and we have to be able to control that. And they're probably like, well, I want to do it this way. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds nice, but uh, we'll definitely let you do that. But well, keep in mind, we got to keep it in this sort of, and, and then there's probably there's probably back and forth, but I think ultimately yeah. they know what they have. Like they're not going to kill the cash cow. At this well, point. No, it's not just that. Like, so I did. I did read an article, and I'd forgotten that I read this. But Chloe Zhao admitted that she went. She went to them. Like she likes these movies, so she went to wanted to make one. And look, I think we do often discount, you know, across the board, directors, actors that like these people want to enjoy themselves. Like it's, I think why a lot of actors make these movies, right? Like we look at these Oscar winning actors and you're like, what the hell are you doing? Cashing a check for this Marvel movie that you're in for 10 minutes. And you're like, maybe it's fun to get in a costume and stand in front of a green screen and do this stuff. So like, I think we discount that because it doesn't, you know, fit with the artistic integrity that we expect from the great actors and directors. But you know, Chloe Zhao said she went to them and like wanted to make this movie. So make make a movie with Marvel. And now she has her opportunity. And maybe she knew all along that that meant she wasn't going to be able to do her thing. And I guess that's fine. Yeah, but she's releasing a movie. I mean, this Eternals is de was delayed and she's releasing it just a short year after winning all these Oscars. I mean, I don't think it's keeping her from doing that much. But um Interestingly enough, Sam Raimi is directing a Marvel movie. Like that seems really? like the perfect director. I mean, I I liked what he did with Spider Man, and it'll be oh, interesting. Those movies are so bad. The, uh, but I think that has more to do with Tobey Maguire. But okay, well, <laughs> that's gonna do time it for that for, conversation. Yeah, that's gonna do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. Coming in under an hour. I've been Chapin Hemingway. Lee Carlos with us. Jeremy Fisk as well. We're back, guys. We don't know what we're going to do next, but it'll be exciting. I can't wait. Back on the saddle. Back in the saddle. On the saddle? In it? Off the wagon. That's for sure. Thank you very much for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.